the Radio Life Sciences podcast for a behind-the-scenes look into GSLS, made by students and educators for the scientists of tomorrow. Radio Welcome to another episode of Radio Life Sciences. Today, I am interviewing Saskia Ebeling, who is the Managing Director of Doctoral Education of the GSLS, and she told us some of the things you should know about doing a PhD. So, if you're considering this, today's episode will give you some insight into both applying and doing a doctoral program at GSLS. Enjoy. Thank you for joining uh, this interview with me today. I was wondering to begin with, could you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, who, who you are and uh, what you do at the university? Yeah, my name is Saskia Ebeling and I am the Managing Director of the Doctoral Education of the Graduate School of Life Sciences. And I've been doing this since about 10 years. And before that, I was trained as a biomedical scientist. I'm an immunologist, in fact, in background. So I've been doing research for quite a while until, yeah, I got fed up with it about 10 years ago and <laughs> decided to shift gears and now I am um, have ended up in the graduate school. Okay, let's talk a little bit about doing a PhD. So to start with, what are uh, some of the most common ways that candidates apply for PhD programs? I guess the most common way is that they see uh, a job opening at a research institution and that is advertised, jobs are advertised usually after PIs receive a grant, manage to obtain a grant, and then advertise for a job for either a PhD or a postdoc. And either you see this on the common websites or you hear it by chance, for example. Okay. And to what extent are these applications and the PhD programs competitive? They are, of course, because usually you're not the only one applying for a job. And it's, it's like any other jobs in the Netherlands um, that you you write a letter and you hand in your CV and hopefully you're invited for an interview. Yeah, so it looks much like uh, a regular job interview then. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, uh, is there anything else more specific about the admission procedure to a PhD program you could maybe share with the listeners? No, well, the first steps are like any other job, like I just told you, um, it's like getting through the interviews and then signing a contract with a research institution, usually for four years. And um, so you're assigned to a certain research project that will be yours for the duration of your uh, PhD journey. And uh, in order to be able to get a doctoral degree, you have to apply officially at the university's committee for conferral of doctoral degrees to be admitted to a PhD track. And one of the criteria is that you have a master's degree which is quite absolute. And you do this um, application through registration in our PhD registration system, which is called My PhD. And there you also apply for entrance into one of our graduate schools. So in our case, the Graduate School of Life Sciences. And you also apply for entrance to a particular PhD program that fits your research topic. So considering that you need a master's program to get a PhD, is it possible for master's students to apply and get positions before they finish their master's program? Or does it usually happen after graduation? After graduation, you can get permission to pursue a PhD without a master's, but that's only in very exceptional cases. 
and then you have to apply for permission uh, with the director of the school, Harald van Rijen, and the director of doctoral education, Van Egberts, and they will interview you and especially your promoter, uh, why you're fit to pursue a PhD, even if you don't have a, a master's degree. And then it will advise the dean to admit you or not. And um, are the PhD programs also connected to the master programs of the GSLS? Are they on the same topics or are they, uh, do they really stand apart from the master? No, programs? most of them are on the same topics. And, and they usually have the same names even. Uh, so they include like environmental biology, for which we have both a master's and PhD programs. The same is for drug innovation, epidemiology, infection and immunity, medical imaging. So most of the master's programs have corresponding PhD programs. And probably the master's students are already familiar with that because when they do a research project, they're usually supervised by a PhD candidate in that particular PhD program. The only exceptions are the master's program bio-inspired innovation, and science and business management. And if uh, I'm a master's student that's curious about doing a PhD in uh, my respective field, what point during my master's should I start looking for these PhD positions? Yeah, rather near the end, because when the advertisement is out, it means that the principal investigator has secured a grant and, and they usually want you to start as soon as possible. Yeah. Fair so enough. if you do it too long in advance, then, then they select you and then you have to say, well, I can't start within half a year. So let's say about three months before you graduate. Okay. The PhD programs, of course, all the different ones are, are probably looking for uh, specific competencies depending on the program. But are there some general things you could say that they're looking for or what the supervisors are looking for in the backgrounds of future life science PhD students? Oh, yes, absolutely. And finally, we recently had uh, the P our PhD Council consists of representatives of our PhD candidates. And each year they organize a Supervisor of the Year event, which was held uh, at the beginning of this month. And it was an online event, but they also with a Mentimeter asked the question to the supervisors who were attending, how does your ideal PhD candidate look like? So I can... So the biggest words I see here right in front of me are curious, honest, reflective, independent, motivated, communicative, eager to learn. Yeah, those are uh, quite make sense uh, for a research position, uh, of course, particularly curious and eager to learn. Yeah. Are there any tips or steps to follow for people who are looking to get a PhD position? Anything uh, you can add still? Yeah. Well, I hope you are aware that, that the graduate school offices offer career services to interested master students, so they can get you more specific advice on, on your CV and on, they can practice a job interview with you. And I would advise to, in the beginning, to apply broadly and maybe also apply for jobs you may not want, but then you can practice the interview. And, and that's, that's really insightful to do that. So maybe even your third application or your invitation for job interview is the one you really want. And then you have already practiced. Yeah. And the other thing is that you have to prepare really well. What supervisors want to hear is that you really want to be a PhD candidate in their lab, that you love their research, their topics. So make sure you are prepared. 
Okay, now let's move a little bit towards what doing a PhD uh, actually looks like. Um, I think most everybody listening would be aware that doing a PhD involves writing a thesis. Master students themselves also write theses, but uh, I assume that there is a difference between the two. So could you explain a little to the listeners what a doctoral thesis looks like and maybe as compared to um, the research projects done by master students? Yeah, the requirements for a thesis are let down in the university's doctoral degree regulations. So you can look look them up at the website of the graduate school and also of the university, but they are quite vague. And so the deans asked uh, us two years ago to form a working group and give a better advice on the content of the thesis, also in light of the fact there are so many publications And getting a manuscript to be published takes such a long time that people usually overrun their contract. So the working group has put together a new quality assurance plan, which can also be found on our website, but which is quite boring to read. (laughs) And in that, we also revised the criteria for the thesis. So the doctoral degree regulations asks you to include a general introduction or a general discussion. And with us, it's end. It's both an introduction and a discussion because those are the chapters that are truly yours and which you can show what you have learned during your PhD journey. And in addition to the introduction and discussion, there should be three research chapters in which you have gone through the whole scientific cycle, like observation, phrasing questions, designing experiments, getting the results, discussing the results in light of literature and back and forth again. And the guideline is three of those chapters, but that's a guideline. If your promoter thinks that, let's say, two chapters are enough because they're really big chapters and you have really contributed to it a lot, then that could be sufficient as well. In general, the reading committee that will judge the manuscript usually agrees on the quality of a thesis. Then they they know a good one when they see one without counting chapters. And you can also add a research chapter in which you're, for example, not the first author, but then you should explain what your own exact contribution is. Like if you're third author on a very big cell paper, I mean, it could be that the chunk of work that you did is large enough and of a good quality to be included in the manuscript. And maybe you even have some additional data that didn't make it to the paper, but you can add it to the chapter in your thesis. But this is new for everybody. So we are going to communicate that by well the beginning of uh, 2022. So for our listeners, that would be, uh, it would broadly apply to them if they want to do a PhD. Yes, yes, certainly. Okay. What are some of the other activities that PhD candidates uh, are expected to do? Depending on your institution, that could be teaching. Many of them working in the lab do supervise master students in a research project. Your students are probably familiar with that. (laughs) And in some institutions, they're also involved in the teaching of bachelor students. So that could be uh, giving a lecture or leading a working group, activities like that. And I think doing research and teaching and, of course, taking courses, developing yourself during your PhD. Because to us, a PhD is more than delivering a thesis. We hope we aim to deliver a person that has impact in science and society, is an independent thinker, is critical 
has developed leadership skills, is able to communicate. Yeah, good that you mentioned it, because the next question uh, is going to be what sort of training uh, is offered to the PhD candidate. So so what co- sort of courses? And if you could, how does the PhD competence ah, model play yeah. into it? The PhD competence model defines some competence areas that are relevant for PhDs. So at the center is, of course, research skills and knowledge. There's responsible conduct of uh, research, communication, teaching, personal effectiveness, leadership and management. And there's one more that I just forgot. And the activities that we expect PhD candidates to take part in are also include attending workshops, seminars, courses, lectures, presenting posters or oral presentations at symposia. So it's quite a broad range in activities. And if you're kind of lucky, your topic fits within a PhD program. So you find your community of PhD candidates there and other PIs that will organize symposia and lectures and masterclasses. You can also find, of course, courses within the PhD Core Center of the Graduate School of Life Sciences, which are for free for our PhD candidates. And of course, there are lots of training and courses offered outside Utrecht that could also be very relevant. And what is relevant is determined by you, by what you need for your research project or for your personal development. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned it just now. What's the function of the PhD center? When did it start and uh, what is its mission for the PhD candidate? It started in 2015, actually as a project to see, because PhDs until that time had had a small budget to attend courses wherever they liked. But we we heard that many didn't were, were not aware of that they had the budget and we didn't know which courses they took and what the quality of the courses were. Like other universities, we decided to, to organize it ourselves so we could keep an eye on the quality and also interact with the PhD candidates on what the need was for particular courses. So we started in 2015 and then the competence model was established together with the other university medical centers in 2017. So that allows you to structure courses in different competencies on, uh, yeah, depending on what you need. It was developed, you mentioned, with the other university medical centers as well across the country. Yeah, they use the same competence model. Okay. Yeah. If there are any, uh, what types of courses are suggested for the the PhD students? Or is it really, as you mentioned, to find what specifically works for you? Yeah, the latter is the case. For that, we have a self-assessment form that gives you some questions to answer, and you should pick let's say two courses per year to focus on. You can't, you can't do everything, but just you are the, the driver of your own development. So you decide, and, and often it's in, um, of course, in, in a conversation with your supervisor, what, what is best for you, both in personal development, but also in scientific skills. And we offer the courses in the course center and in the PhD programs, of course, but also the different institutions also have sets of workshops, training for all employees. So the university has the development guide with also some particular uh, courses for PhD candidates like manage your supervisor, which is a very relevant course. And UMC Utrecht has, for example, you learn is also a set of courses that are attractive and meant for employees to follow. Um, So use the self-assessment form, discuss it with your supervisor and um, 
my first focus would be as a PhD candidate to uh, work on a good working relationship with your supervisor, because that's really key to a successful PhD track. And we also included that in our new quality assurance plan, because it's a two-way process, a good relationship. So your supervisor should put in, and we offer a training for supervisors to help them with that, to support them better. Um, also, we have the courses for the PhD candidates, and we advise you to be proactive and take responsibility for a successful relationship. And um, we hear from PhD candidates, I mean, it's, it, it hasn't changed since the day I graduated, that as a PhD, you're really dependent on your supervisor. That's absolutely true. But it doesn't mean that you have to be really passive and that you can't speak up for yourself and discuss with your supervisor what would work best in the relationship with your supervisor. Tell them what you need and what um, irritates you, what they can expect from you. And ask your supervisor and re be really specific what your supervisor expects from you. And don't assume because other people in the lab behave in a certain manner that that is the way that is normal and is good. Just ask around, ask the other PhDs, but specifically ask your supervisor. In case that there, there are uh, any difficulties and you have tried to communicate, but they, they don't get resolved or anything. Are there any yeah. services to help PhD students in that case? Yeah, absolutely. And it does happen. All the surveys show nationwide, but also in our graduate school, that 80% of PhDs is very happy with the supervision. So that's, that's okay. And we also see it in the nominations for the supervisor of the year. We have many good supervisors. But still, in 20% of the cases, there could be improvement. So that's why we organize this training to help supervisor be a better supervisor. And that's why we also want PhD candidates to have one or two independent advisors. Those are most times colleagues of your supervisor, but they don't have to be. If you feel that they're too close to your supervisor, you can talk to anyone outside. It's up to you who you would like to be your independent advisor. And uh, you should have a conversation with this independent advisor at least once a year to discuss your progress report that you should make as a PhD candidate about the research, about the relationship with the supervisor, about symposia, about finishing up when you're about in year three. But also in between, you can ask them to have a cup of coffee and, um, and discuss some difficulties. Of course, that pertains specifically to issues that you find difficult to address with your supervisor. They're there for you. Now, if that doesn't work somehow with your independent advisor, we now have per faculty a confidential PhD advisor who is really confidential, who doesn't take action without you knowing it, who just helps you find the right way of solving your problem. And most of the time, just talking to this person uh, already helps. Yeah, and, and there are a lot of other confidential counselor for inappropriate behavior for, at the university for scientific misconduct. There is the staff welfare service, Bedrijfsmaatschappelijk uh, Werk. We have a dedicated PhD psychologist, but we hope you never end up there. You, we will hope that you can find some help, let's say at a lower level. And that's why it's so important to communicate well with your supervisor, because it can prevent a lot of stress and waste of energy. 
going back to the courses for a second, how many PhD students make use of the courses in the PhD center? Yeah, like we only offer them for free since 2019. So numbers are still increasing. We have 1800 PhD candidates. And I think this year, which is of course a bit weird due to COVID, about half of them attended the course. As far as I know, the most common duration of a PhD project is four years, but you mentioned earlier already that it's not uncommon to run into delay, if I heard that correctly. Um, what, are, what are some of the reasons that that happens? Ooh, a, a project never goes like you intended it when you started out or when your supervisor designed it. It always goes wrong. When you're on a, a bad track, you always stop too late because you're hopeful that it will work out in the end. So it's a matter of planning. And also the deans asked the working group to find some remedies against it. And now it is decided that one year before the end of the contract, you need to put together uh, a completion plan to make sure there's a manuscript ready for the reading committee by the end of the contract. And I think it will also help that we don't ask for accepted publications in peer-reviewed journals. Of course, it is everybody's aim. And if there is time, of course, you should try and do that because it is part of the scientific cycle. But it causes a lot of delay. And many of PhDs will leave academia at certain point because simply there isn't enough space for everybody to um, pursue an academic career. Yeah, at a, at, at a job like, like mine, you don't need publications anymore. <laughs> you do need a PhD, but you don't need the publications. <laughs> Is it possible for PhD students that they do part of their PhD abroad or some courses abroad, or is it all done at one research group here in Utrecht? Well, most of the times, yes, it's done in Utrecht all the time. But if your supervisor has a collaboration with another lab, like for instance, Heidelberg, and they have a technology running that you need to, they can agree that you go to that lab and learn it and do your specific experiments there. And it also happens with, especially with international PhDs, they call this a sandwich PhD that they start in Utrecht, then they go home for another two years, for example, and do the last year in Utrecht again. It does happen. Yeah. Now, going back to uh, what you mentioned in the previous questions, that most people end up leaving academia. So I have a very practical question then there for you. What are the advantages of doing a PhD, particularly if you're not planning on staying in academia? Oh, there are many. Maybe if you go apply for a job in a really different field, you have to explain it to people, but it means you're able to do time management, project management, work under stress, collaborate with people, give feedback, analyze your data, give presentations, which are all skills that are very useful in a lot of jobs. Communicate well, eh? give presentations, write up your data, write reviews maybe. So it's a kind of um, degree for a certain personal development, that you're independent, that you have developed leadership skills because you have also supervised students. And maybe you should articulate that when you apply for a job completely different from science. Yeah, so you do develop a much broader skill set than just the particular research uh, that you... Oh, absolutely. You go through a very steep learning curve is our experience. So now I'd like to ask some questions of you personally. <laughs> You've already mentioned it a little bit about your personal background, but how did you end up at the PhD center? Well, like I told you about 10 years ago, I decided to leave science because it didn't 
I didn't find fulfillment anymore in doing science. And actually, I didn't quite know what else was there. That's why we are organizing career services, because we don't want people to be completely unaware of what is outside academic life. But at that time, I, I didn't know what was there. And already at that time, the strategic theme, life sciences of the university came into existence, at least the three faculties, science, veterinary medicine, and uh, UMC already worked together in the areas of uh, research and uh, education and knowledge valorization. And they were looking for a project manager. And I thought that was an excellent uh, opportunity to stay in life sciences and at the same time learn how it worked, research strategy and and what type of education we were offering, because actually I didn't know. Um, And I thought, well, it also gives me an opportunity to um, enlarge my network of people. So that worked out. And when I started, we didn't have PhD programs yet. We had started with the graduate schools by organizing the master domain. And then there was a a kind of a plan to develop the PhD program. So we started doing that. And after the programs, we started to um, organize the PhD core center. And now we're focusing on the supervisors and more events uh, for PhDs. So gradually... I ended up in a job that didn't exist when I started this. Mm-hmm. What do you like most about this job? Well, I, I like working in this life sciences ecosystem that we have in Utah, which is maybe the biggest in Europe and the most complete and complex. And we do fascinating research, so it's fun to be part of that. To educate young people is nice, and also to fix the problems in the schools that I had encountered myself when I was a PhD candidate. And I think those problems just cause a waste of energy and stress, which is not necessary for people. So to stimulate it, to develop themselves is fun to see. And within the school, we have an excellent team and I like the teamwork. So yeah, that's the fun part of the job. What are the fun things you do outside of the job? Outside of the job. I love um, culture. I like going to classical concerts and I even play since December, since COVID, a, a bit of a piano or I try to do it and I like uh, nature I like to go outside and uh, walk and hike and I love sports also outside I run I skate I play golf so yeah very busy I, can I bike that. yeah <laughs> yeah is there uh, any final advice you would like to give to the listeners be proactive in anything what you do. Don't assume things like how you think you should behave or how you think you're, the people around you expect from you. Check it with them and check with yourself if that's the way you want to be. So be proactive, ask for advice and follow your heart and use your brain. And everybody has a heart and, and, and your students all have brains. So that shouldn't be too difficult. So then the last part of the podcast is the proudest questions that I'm going to ask you now. What are your favorite qualities in a person? Uh, sense of humor. I love intelligent people. I like a lot. I'm a bit of an introvert myself. So I noticed that I like extrovert people. Extrovert and cheerful. Yes. And what do you dislike the most? Um, Not necessarily about a person. Uh, no, I, I guess that would be dishonesty. Yeah. How would you define success? 
That's not an easy question. <laughs> I can imagine. How is success? It's it's well for me. It's not like being on top of the mountain or uh, earning a lot of money. I think it's nice to create impact, being of value in the areas that are most important to you. So it's about quality, quality of life, quality of work, and and yeah, and what defines the quality is. Um, Yeah, de depends on you, of course. Yeah. What's your motto? Oh, I think just be happy and care for each other a bit. Yeah. Live by the day. Then the final, final thing I have to ask you is, do you have a book recommendations for the listeners? Oh, there are so many good books out there and not enough time to read them. I like historical novels. There's a great one from an, uh, a writer from uh, Estonia, Jan Kos. I read it in Dutch, of course. It's Between Three Plagues, if that is the correct English translation. Um, there's another one from, I think it was a Belgian author, Jan van Aken, The Ommegang. And there are some, there's a bunch of young female uh, authors in the Netherlands, like uh, Marieke Lucas Reineveld, Marge Wortel, Amy Koopman. Yeah, too many to mention. Thank you very much for uh, talking to me today. You're welcome. It was it was a pleasure for me. Thank you. Thank you.